Welcome to the 429th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome back to COVID Calls, STS researcher and filmmaker, Sulfakar Amir. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and also on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of February 24th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the nation of Indonesia is reporting 147,025 deaths from COVID-19. Malaysia reports 32,488 lives lost to the disease, and Singapore reports 963 deaths to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline, Keti Herawati Sultana, tireless Indonesian physician, dies at 60. This was written by Richard C. Paddock and Muktita Suhartono and appeared April 23, 2020 in the New York Times. A senior doctor at Medistra Hospital in Jakarta, Keti Harawati Sultana, was known as a tireless physician who would treat anyone without regard for her own welfare. In Indonesia's transportation minister, Budi Karya Samadi, arrived at the hospital in mid-March with what appeared to be typhoid. She was part of the team that treated him. His illness instead turned out to be one of Indonesia's early cases of the new coronavirus. Dr. Keti and several other staff members soon contracted the virus themselves, although its origin was never pinpointed. She died on April 3rd, 2020 at the hospital, said her daughter, Dr. Margareta Octaviani. She was 60. The death of Dr. Ketty, who spent her career at Medistra Hospital as a general practitioner, highlighted concerns about the risks for medical personnel treating coronavirus patients in Indonesia, where personal protective equipment has been limited. Again, this story comes from April of 2020. She is one of at least 42 doctors, nurses, and dentists in Indonesia who had died at the time that this story was written. Native of Jakarta, the Indonesian capital, Dr. Ketty had a reputation for being kind and generous, but also for being strict and tenacious in her work. Mama would treat any patient, her daughter said. She would not think twice whether it's a patient with a contagious disease or not. If it's a sick person who needs help, Mama would treat that patient right away. Dr. Margareta, age 29, said that her mother was a powerful influence and that she had followed her example into medicine. I became a doctor because of Mama, she said. I saw how Mama helped other people, how she was respected by other people, and how she was loved by her patients. A friend and fellow doctor, Anita Puspasari, recalled how one patient was confused about whether to undergo a certain medical procedure. Dr. Ketty personally took the patient to a doctor at another hospital to get a second opinion. She wanted the patient to have a peace of mind, Dr. Anita said. She helped everybody. 
Dr. Ketty loved to cook and often brought food to the hospital that she had prepared at home. She ordered us, her colleagues, to enjoy her cooking, Dr. Anita said. She was a very pleasant person and kind. We all feel a very huge loss with her passing. Dr. Ketty is survived by her husband and three children. The obituary of Dr. Ketty Herawati Sultana, who died in April of 2020, COVID-19. Okay, it's my pleasure to bring Sulfakar Amir back to COVID Calls. Let me introduce him in case you're not familiar with his work. He's not a stranger to COVID Calls. He's an associate professor of science, technology, and society, and a faculty member in the sociology program in the School of Social Sciences at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. He is the author of The Technological State in Indonesia, The Co-Constitution of High Technology and Authoritarian Politics, and he's also the editor of Socio, the Socio-Technical Constitution of Resilience, a New Perspective on Governing Risk and Disaster, which appeared in 2018. He's also a filmmaker, and his latest film is titled Healing Fukushima. Sofakar Amir, welcome back to COVID Calls. It's good to be back, Scott. How are you? Doing okay. Doing okay. Uh, and I was really eager to get you back on because this is our third time to talk. And as we're putting this archive together, it was important to me to have your, well, first of all, I'd just like to see you again, but then also just to have your voice one more time to get this perspective from Singapore. It looks like you're facing the same kind of situation we're facing here in South Korea right now. You're in an Omicron wave, it appears. Yes, Omicron wave is uh, coming to Singapore. Uh, since uh, early January. Uh, so basically the whole regions of Southeast Asia is now facing the Omicron wave and Singapore is one of those countries that uh, is seeing a high increase of uh, infection cases. Uh, and actually two days ago, we reached a record-breaking number. Uh, it was uh, 26,000 uh, cases. Uh, it went down uh, slightly uh, uh, yesterday, but then I think to not, uh, I know today uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a higher uh, you know, uh, number of cases again. So that's uh, very much similar situations uh, that we see in uh, the neighboring countries, including Indonesia and Malaysia. Yeah. So maybe we can back up a, a little bit. Um, you know, when we talked... So we talked a year ago on the anniversary of the Fukushima disaster, and you were part of a, a great conversation that we did um, with other colleagues, Japanese colleagues for that. We had our first conversation on COVID calls. I don't know if you remember, it was May 21st, 2020. And, and so uh, it's, it's, it's been a while. And, um, you know, at that time, and I think throughout the pandemic, Singapore has taken uh, can only be described as a very aggressive approach to managing infection. So how has it been over the last year, before the Omicron wave started, what was the situation there in terms of vaccination rates, uh, in terms of you know public confidence in the health system? How were things looking leading up to January? Uh, 
Well, we can go back to the time before Delta came to Singapore in uh, I think in July and August last year. Uh, the vaccination rate was already uh, uh, high. I mean, back then uh, the uh, I think the coverage of uh, double dose vaccination has reached about eighty uh, percent. Uh, but then uh, when Delta variant uh, entered Singapore, it was quite uh, unexpected in terms of the, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the ability of the variant to spread so quickly and so massively. Uh, Singapore government decided to tighten the, uh, the measures uh, a little bit, uh, but still keep uh, the border open for uh, foreign travelers. Uh, not until in July that the government realized that the situation uh, was worse than they expected. Uh, but, uh, you know, for the past two years, uh, Singapore has been trying to manage the situations uh, by taking a very, very strict action. Uh, to uh, you know, uh, uh, to to manage the pandemic uh, crisis, uh, but when the Delta wave you know, came, the government realized that it was uh, no longer uh, you know doable to go back to the time when you know a, a circuit breaker was implemented. Uh, so in I think uh, in. In, uh, in September, the Singapore government decided that we're going to go through this, you know, uh, Delta wave without uh, so much uh, restriction as it was, uh, as it used to be uh, in, 20, uh, in 2020, given the fact that Singapore has reached a high level of vaccination. And uh, that decision comes with consequences because it allows people to you know, do social activities every day as usual. Although, of course, there are some restrictions, but it comes with a high, you know, uh, a number of cases. And uh, eventually the the wave was inevitable in Singapore and it caused a massive number of uh, hospitalization. Uh, well, the health infrastructure was uh, overwhelmed during uh, October and November, and then mm. finally, you know, the uh, Delta wave went down uh, by December, and the situation gets stable. Uh, but it, you know, it doesn't take another month when you know, Omicron wave came. Uh, but I think uh, the Singapore government already uh, uh, prepared for that. Uh, we, uh, you know, they learned the fact that the Omicron wave was not as severe as Delta. Uh, so there's no much uh, changes in terms of uh, social restrictions. Uh, there is some form of uh, sort of um, uh, a monitoring, testing, and, and vaccinations that uh, are ramped up of, uh, you know, uh, since uh, Delta wave came. Uh, and uh, and now uh, Omicron wave, uh, I think, has been around for uh, maybe four weeks now in Singapore, and uh, the the you know the hospitals uh, was uh, were are slightly overwhelmed 
at the moment, but not because of uh, of severe cases, but more of people who tested positive and asking for uh, medical certificate mm. because by yeah, that's the only way they can you know take an uh, take a leave from office, right? So a lot of people are going to a doctor asking for medical certificate, <laughs> including students. Uh, wow. And this is something that the government say, okay, uh, uh, as long as you tested positive and you can show uh, the, the result using uh, anti, uh, uh, antigen rapid test, then it should be okay. It should be acceptable. Uh, so yeah, so that's what people do now. I mean, every day uh, people are uh, uh, encouraged to take tests whenever they feel, you know, uh, 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 a bit uh, unhealthy. And as a matter of fact, um, every week I have students uh, tested positive. And today I get four students really uh, wow. who missed the midterm exam because of that. So yeah, I have to make I have to prepare. I have to arrange for a makeup uh, midterm for them. So um, I I love your shirt, and I'm glad yeah. you you definitely dressed up well for this conversation, and I appreciate that. Um, you know, talk, talk to me a little bit about Singapore's pathway to vaccination, because you know countries like Australia and where I'm in South Korea were quite a bit slower, I think, than Singapore in getting hold of a vaccine. Was it? produced there domestically? Were you able to purchase a supply in the open market? And when were people vaccinated? Okay. So about this, uh, the t-shirt, this is uh, my vaccine certificate. So I don't have to bring any paper form <laughs> to to go to the malls and other places. So yeah, uh, well, Singapore is one of the countries with the highest level of uh, vaccination. Uh, uh, and of course, thanks to the government's uh, successful uh, attempt to uh, secure supplies from global manufacturers of vaccine, including Moderna, uh, Pfizer, uh, BioNTech, and etc. Uh, so there are two major uh, uh, COVID-19 vaccines uh, that have been used in Singapore, uh, Pfizer and uh, Moderna. And as a matter of fact, I think back in July 2020, uh, the government, uh, the Singapore government's uh, 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 own company called uh, Temasek Holdings managed to purchase share of BioNTech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they, uh, they eke an agreement uh, uh, last year to open a manufacturer facility uh, in Singapore uh, by 2023. So they're gonna produce uh, you know, a BioNTech vaccine uh, uh, starting you know, next year. Uh, so in terms of supply, uh, Singapore has no problem at all. And uh, at the moment, uh, the vaccination rate uh, in Singapore has reached uh, 97% of the, pop- of the population. Uh, and the, uh, and I think uh, for a booster, it has reached uh, almost 60%. Mm-hmm. So it's very aggressive in terms of, you know, of vaccination. And, it is, and this is because uh, the Singapore government believes that some vaccination is the way to, to, to pass through this you know, pandemic. So, 97%. Yeah. I, I think that must be the highest in the world. Yeah, one of the highest in the world. But of course, you have to uh, uh, consider the, uh, the size of the population. 
increase is quite small, 5.8 uh, million. So, uh, yeah. Still. Yeah, I think it is, it's, yeah, it's less than the people in New York. <laughs> Still, there, there's no there's no grouping of 5.8 million people anywhere in the world with that high of a rate. I can't imagine. Are you very close to the top, as you said? Um, one of the issues we talked about way back in 2020 was the um, difficulty at that time of the unevenness of the infection rate and problem of outbreak, particularly among guest workers in Singapore. Yes. And that, that made international news pretty early in the pandemic. Bring us up to date on that. That was all resolved in 2020. Has have there been continuing issues related to non-citizens? Well, there's been some improvement uh, that uh, the government agency has made uh, uh, for uh, the accommodations of uh, migrant workers. Although, of course, uh, the risk of infection is relatively, uh, you know, still high among migrant workers because of their living condition. But compared to what happened in 2020, I think uh, we have to appreciate what the government has done uh, to improve the facility. Uh, and uh, I guess the infection risk in Singapore is no longer concentrated among migrant workers. Basically, you know, uh, uh, everyone you know, all over Singapore, uh, people who go to work, people who go to school, people who go to restaurants, and etc. And uh, the Singapore government seems uh, to have no interest in going back to uh, tighten the uh, you know, social restrictions. And, and as a matter of fact, you know, they have been thinking of uh, easing the restrictions next month, uh, depending on the uh, situation with the Omicron wave. Once the Omicron wave, uh, you know, wanes, I think the government is going to do it. Uh, and this has also happened uh, uh, with the borders. Uh, so, so far, um, there's no strict, you know, uh, entrance for uh, people who uh, come from overseas. Uh, and uh, before Omicron, actually, uh, Singapore uh, has uh, arranged uh, what they call vaccinated travel land uh, with uh, 20 uh, countries. Right. So people can come here from, you know, that group of countries that have a VTL agreement with Singapore without uh, having to do a quarantine. They just have to do, uh, you know, test for three days. And if they pass it and that's it, they can, you know, do whatever they want. They can you know, walk uh, outside and, and, yeah, and enjoy the city. So uh, and uh, and Singapore is going to expand this uh, uh, group of uh, VTL uh, uh, next month, uh, and uh, there is also uh, you know a plan to completely uh, open the border uh, regardless of the origins of travelers. So they just focus on the individuals. So they are, they are only look looking at the vaccination you know, status, uh, whether they come from the United States, whether they come from Australia, from China, from Australia. So they, they don't really uh, see that. What they, see, they, what they want to see is the, uh, the, the vaccination history of that person.
just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Sulfakar Amir today and getting an update on the COVID situation in Singapore. So one of the other things that South Korea and Singapore share is this um, intense commitment of the government to showcase technology. And I mean, most countries do that. But I think in Singapore and South Korea, they sort of take it to the next level, as evidenced by what you were telling me a moment ago about the early investment in pharmaceutical manufacturing, which will now render 2023 pharmaceutical manufacturing there in Singapore. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, if you would, the sort of rhetoric around science and technology and how that's worked in, in Singapore, because in South Korea, it's been a point of major pride. It, even though getting the vaccine here was slow, uh, compared to other countries, the testing, track, trace technology, um, the ability of the health system to manage things pretty well um, has been something that uh, the government has really wanted to export, basically, put forward as a sort of a point of national pride. I wonder if it's similar there in Singapore. I mean, you're a close student of science, technology, and society. So is this some kind of a turning point for technology in Singapore? Yeah, I think... The pandemic uh, provides an opportunity uh, for researchers and innovators to develop devices and uh, products that can help people to live their life, you know, relatively normal. Uh, and uh, one example is the use of this uh, uh, mobile application called Trace Together, uh, which is also which also has. Uh, 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 another versions uh, that it put, that is put into a gadget uh, called Trace Together Token. Uh, this is basically a, a tool for tracing if someone who close to you you know tested positive and you uh, will be asked to to do testing as well, right? And whenever you enter a facility, you have to scan, etc. So basic basic technology, which I believe. You know, almost all uh, countries in the world are doing the same. Uh, uh, but I think uh, when we, when it comes to, you know, the opportunity to produce, you know, vaccines, that's a different story, because uh, this is uh, the, a kind of industry that cannot be built, you know, overnight. Right? You cannot just bring, for example, AstraZeneca technology. And put it somewhere in a country that has no, you know, uh, uh, existing infrastructure to produce the vaccines, and uh, not to mention uh, main power and uh, and the researchers and uh, as well as experts who can you know work together to uh, uh, support the production of these you know, vaccines, and that's exactly what we see here in Singapore when uh, the, the government managed to. Uh, invest money in BioNTech and to bring uh, BioNTech technology here in Singapore and uh, develop the uh, manufacture facility, uh, which I heard is fully automated. <laughs> so uh, because of lack of manpower, of course. Uh, so uh, and uh, uh, and I think it's 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 now under construction, uh, uh, and they're gonna start producing uh, vaccines, you know, by uh, next year. And this is possible because Singapore has invested a lot of money uh, to develop uh, a biotech, uh, uh, you know, uh, infrastructures. Mm. Uh, uh, 
uh, one example that has been sort of the hallmark of Singapore uh, biotech capacity is the uh, Biopolis, which is sort of a complex of uh, techno scientific uh, 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 research and institution that attract uh, uh, many uh, researchers around the world to come here and uh, to uh, produce uh, you know, innovations in uh, medicine, in uh, bio, uh, biotechnology related products and, and et cetera. Uh, and I think it is these infrastructures that uh, provides an environment for uh, uh, products such as, you know, BioNTech vaccine uh, to be easily uh, adopted and to be easily uh, 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 produced because of the availability of resources uh, uh, and uh, manpower as well as institutions. Enough to mention, of course, capital uh, that that of course. Uh, uh, you know, uh, appear to be very, very attractive uh, mm. for companies like you know, BioNTech. So I think it's a win-win solution uh, for BioNTech and for uh, Singapore government to uh, work together to produce vaccines and uh, making uh, Singapore as a hub for uh, vaccine production, uh, at least uh, in Southeast Asia, if not in Asia. So if you could bring me up to date a little bit on some of the neighboring countries there, particularly Indonesia. I mean, I read those statistics at the beginning. Of course, Indonesia is an enormous country yeah. with vast population, so totally different from Singapore, but uh, you know the country well. What's happening there? Well, Indonesia is a completely different story. Uh, of course, they're now also facing Omicron wave. Uh, but the situation was not as bad as uh, when uh, Delta wave uh, was happening back in June and July. I happened to be in Indonesia during the, uh, the second wave of Delta, and I see with my own eyes how the situation was so grim, so dark. Every day, 2,000 people die because of COVID-19, and not to mention uh, the unreported cases of uh, an excess death that is not included in the government report, right? Uh, but uh, I think uh, for Omicron wave, the situation is slightly different because the government uh, was prepared uh, and the vaccination rate uh, uh, was much, much higher than uh, when Delta wave uh, happened. Uh, and uh, what, uh, what we see is the uh, hospitalization rate uh, that is much, much lower compared to uh, the, uh, the, the previous uh, uh, wave of Delta back in June and July. Uh, so the situation was relatively stable, although the government has to tighten some of the uh, you know, uh, uh, restrictions in, in several parts of the countries, including uh, uh, in, uh, in a number of cities in Java where you know, that, that had become the epicenter of Omicron, you know, spread. Uh, but overall, I think uh, Indonesia is doing okay with, uh, with the current situation. And uh, they already started, uh, uh, you know, giving a booster shot, uh, especially to a vulnerable populations such as, uh, uh, you know, older uh, uh, people uh, and those with, you know, uh, comorbid disease, so, so I think uh, uh, the situation uh, is relatively uh, uh, manageable. Uh, 
that what we see in Indonesia. And what about the the government there? You know, in terms of political strife and and keeping a handle on any kind of you know criticism that might have been uh, surfacing of the government there. Was there much by way of dissent in terms of the way the government in Indonesia was managing the pandemic, or or not really? I think for uh, for the current situation, uh, we have to appreciate what the government uh, is doing in responding to the Omicron wave. Uh, the Ministry of Health is doing a wonderful job, I think, in providing, uh, you know, uh, in ramping up uh, health facility, healthcare facility, especially in uh, vulnerable uh, areas, uh, such as in Jakarta, in Surabaya, Bandung, etc. Uh, uh, so the critiques uh, that comes from uh, people who think the government is not doing a, a good job uh, is not so much, you know, uh, uh, very, uh, I would say, uh, uh, very hard compared to, you know, the what happened last year. Uh, uh, and I think uh, the government has learned, you know, uh, their lesson. You know, the, the Delta wave really, really, mm. you know, taught a very hard lesson to Indonesian government. As, uh, and now they accepted the fact that you know uh, they they don't want to repeat you know the 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 mistake the same mistake over and over after uh, mishandling the pandemic for one and a half year. So now the government is ramping up healthcare facility, uh, boosting up the uh, 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 vaccination rates, uh, and of course uh, uh, giving more. Uh, you know more uh, uh, positive uh, uh, communications to the uh, to the people, and it showing a sense of crisis that uh, that did not happen before. So I think uh, this is something that uh, uh, we should applaud. You know the the Indonesian government. And you were talking about the the openness uh, once again to travel in Singapore. So if there was restrictions on movement back and forth between Indonesia and Singapore for some time? Uh, yeah, actually, before Omicron, uh, there was a PTL uh, uh, from Singapore, no, from Indonesia to Singapore. So Singapore, uh, uh, you know, accept people who travel from Indonesia without having to do uh, the, the quarantine. But now the PTL agreement uh, was under, uh, was, uh, was on hold uh, for the moment. Uh, but there's been a discussions of you know uh, opening up the borders uh, fully for uh, people in, in two countries. And actually, uh, I mean, uh, uh, last week, uh, the Bali uh, uh, airport uh, was already uh, reopened, uh, and there's a first Singapore airline flight that you know flew to uh, Bali in you know, the last week. Mm. with Singapore in you know, a tourist. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's you know uh, the, the the consequences of that, but so far I don't I don't hear any any problem with that. I mean the the, the number of infection cases in in Bali uh, is relatively stable. So yeah hopefully mm. it continues uh, that way. I'll just remind folks I'm uh, talking with Sulfakar Amir today on COVID calls and um let me just change topics a little bit. So um, 
you're a filmmaker. And whenever we talk, I have to get an update from you about how your filmmaker eyes are seeing and what your filmmaker brain is thinking right now. And I'm curious, um, you know, I mean, you made films about Fukushima and they're great films and, and the, the film Healing Fukushima, one of the things I like, and everybody should watch that film, one of the things that I like so much about it, and we've talked about this before, is um, your use of silence, your use of emptiness, your attention to places that are scary because they're empty and you feel like they shouldn't be. And I've thought about those, those images a lot with COVID and the difficulty that filmmakers, I think, are going to have in sort of rendering the different modes of COVID, which seem to run between full emergency departments and overtaxed healthcare, you know, and then on one side and then silence and emptiness, empty spaces on the other. But I can't turn that into a film. That's your job. So I, I wonder what you, if you don't mind talking a little bit about it, have you been thinking about COVID from the perspective of the visual? Uh, well, thank, thanks, Scott, for bringing this up. Uh, well, and I always appreciate, you know, how you describe my film and how you, you know, phrase uh, what uh, I did in that film. Uh, <clears throat> well, uh, well, I uh, it, it came it occurred to me to uh, to to produce uh, another documentary that illustrate you know the impact of pandemic, uh, especially on uh, urban communities. It will be I think uh, interesting to show you know how people uh, were deeply affected uh, by the pandemic, right? Um, uh, but of course, you know the 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 situation does not allow me to do that at the moment. So, uh, but I can see that uh, you know uh, I guess w what is interesting would be to uh, to make uh, another film uh, that tells a story after the pandemic. Uh, well, there's a there's a bunch of uh, documentary films that you can watch about COVID-19 uh, and, and there's a number of uh, really, really fascinating films on Netflix, on uh, Disney+, Plus, uh, on, uh, on Amazon, Prime, etc. Uh, that, you know, uh, focus on that topic, right? Uh, uh, but what is, uh, I think, uh, what we need to see is how do people feel, you know, after going through Two and now three years of pandemic. Uh, mm. uh, well, will, uh, are they still feeling uh, uh, anxiety, or and how and how they think about you know what in the future you know, holds? I think this is this is uh, we are now living in a in a time of uncertainty, uh, and a lot of things can happen. And of course, yesterday uh, Russia. Send troops to Ukraine, right? And that creates another uh, humanity crisis yeah. in the world, and we we don't know, you know, the repercussions of that action, right? Uh, and I think uh, similar to pandemic, I mean, uh, uh, last year we were so optimistic that the vaccines will end it, yeah. but then after. Uh, uh, 
we reach a high level vaccinations uh, and we see that it doesn't work as we expect. Yeah. Uh, the coronavirus is still around us. So how do we live our life in this kind of uncertainties, regardless uh, our knowledge, our uh, uh, science institutions, our technological capability, uh, and so on? You know, how will we how how will we face uh, and, and deal with uh, a level of uncertainty that we have a limited? Uh, 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 ability uh, to to respond to it, and yeah, I think I think for me that that question is is more is more disturbing, <laughs> and we need to answer that. You know? uh, whether we have a good answer or not, remain to be to be seen, right? But I yeah, I don't. It's interesting yeah. to it. Lord. Yeah, for sure. Well, well, I don't want you to give away your trade secrets, but I mean, I am curious. Like, who do you want to talk to about that? I mean, who? I I, I find that question pretty compelling too. To ask people, maybe to go beyond what was your experience of COVID, but your, the question which you're putting forward, which is, how do you plan to live now? That's a really good question. Who do you want to ask? I think the the first group of people that have to be asked that questions are those who have the power to control our lives, right? I want to see how they see, how they view this problem. I want to see what perspective they are going to use to ensure us that we're going to be okay. Hmm. So we're talking about, you know, uh, 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 policymakers, talking about politicians, uh, scientific experts, uh, 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 and the likes that have uh, a better uh, ability uh, to handle, you know, the uncertain futures of our life, uh, and then, then, and and then we bring it to the reality of 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 life by asking, you know, ordinary people what they expect, you know, how they will respond to it. Uh, and 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 how they think about you know their life in the future. Uh, so I think it will be interesting to compare and to see maybe a, a big gap between these two group of people. Right? So yeah, I think so. You'll see that gap. I, I, yeah, and and also you know thinking what we were talking about before, you know, country like Singapore, or again maybe South Korea. Um, where I imagine if you talk to top policymakers and people who are in science policy, um, they're going to point to COVID as a real, as a turning point in their careers and as a moment in which they had to come up with fresh thinking about health service, about about some issues which maybe they didn't want to deal with, like issues around yeah. healthcare provision for guest workers, as we talked about before. But I, I don't think if, I mean, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I think it's going to be a very different situation in the United States. I mean, you know the United States very well, too. But I mean, Singapore and the U.S. are going to come out of this pandemic, even in the science bureaucracy, with very different lessons, I think. That's right. That's right. That, that is absolutely true. And uh, that makes me always you know, grateful uh, for living in a country where, uh, you know, uh, the authority pay attention and, you know, and, and always try to protect their citizens, right? Uh, uh, and of course, 
you know, as an SDS scholar, you know, we have a job to criticize scientists uh, uh, and the science institutions. But at the same time, we have to appreciate if that science is used to protect citizens. And sure. this is this is yeah, this is the point where we we have to draw a line between how to criticize science as a, a powerful institution that may harm the people, uh, right? Uh, uh, from the fact that uh, you know uh, science has been used to uh, you know uh, uh, to to uh, uh, to make us uh, more aware of our uh, you know uh, our uh, limited knowledge. So I think we're talking about the the ability of science institutions and of course the government to be more reflective. Uh, mm-hmm. And use that knowledge uh, uh, in in uh, in in a wiser way, so that you know, we are, so that everyone is protected. Of course, we have to recognize that even the most brilliant scientists and the most advanced, you know, scientific knowledge uh, have limitations in predicting the future, has limitations right. in fully uh, protect uh, you know everyone. Uh, but I guess, yeah, I think it depends on the political, you know, the political uh, uh, conditions that allow science to uh, to be more meaningful and more uh, beneficial for people. Well, uh, uh, countries like the United States that has, you know, high reputations and high capability in scientific research, of course, have the advantage of protecting their citizens uh, uh, in using that knowledge so that you know the pandemic could be ended, uh, right? Uh, immediately, uh, but what we see is basically sort of the opposite of the situation. Right. So yeah. So uh, we're almost up on time. But there was uh, one more issue I wanted to get to, and that is um, your your plans to get back to Japan. Uh, <laughs> if you have any at any time, you know, you and I oh, were talking about this. Yeah. I mean, yes. I moved to South Korea. And I, under ordinary conditions, I would have already been there three or four times in this last year to see friends and to do work, and I haven't been at all. Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, going to Japan whenever the border is open. I just <laughs> book my flight and yeah, boom. <laughs> what are they doing? Yeah. They're not going to open. They're being very. Their approach to the border has been vexing to me. I haven't understood it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I think they're going back to the. Uh, uh, Pre-Meiji era. <laughs> well, I'm definitely not getting in then. Completely <laughs> isolated from the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I hope we get a chance sometime soon uh, yeah, to get too. back there. I mean, you have you have ongoing research sites there. You need to get back. Of course, yes. Yeah, I, I have unfinished business in, in Tokyo. Yeah. Well, um just want to take a moment to thank you for your work and also for coming on COVID calls three times over the run of this project. It's meant a lot to me and, and it's great to have your perspective um, from Singapore there. And um, so I hope we'll keep in touch. I'm sure we will be in contact soon. And I just want to also remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls. Um, right now we're doing COVID calls all different hours because we're moving towards March 16th, which will culminate in COVID calls project. And um, so just follow my Twitter 
at US of Disaster for updates. Sulfacar, take care of yourself and um, keep well. And thanks again for coming on. Thanks for having me here, Scott. Stay safe. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.